Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will cover umbilical cord prolapse. Umbilical cord prolapse is a well-known obstetrical emergency in which the umbilical cord passes through the cervix at the same time as or in advance of the fetal presenting part. The cord is then prone to compression between the fetal presenting part and the surrounding soft tissues or the bony pelvis, which can lead to fetal hypoxia. Although not a common obstetrical emergency, umbilical cord prolapse is one in which the initial response can make a difference in the quality of maternal and fetal outcome. The incidence of umbilical cord prolapse is estimated to be between 1.4 and 6.2 per thousand pregnancies. Although this has not changed in the last century, perinatal outcomes for umbilical cord prolapse have improved significantly. Historically, umbilical cord prolapse has been associated with poor neonatal outcomes with perinatal mortality ranging from 32 to 47% in the early to the mid 20th century. Current rates of perinatal mortality in cases of umbilical cord prolapse are estimated to be 10% or less. The most likely explanation for these vastly improved outcomes are the increased availability of cesarean delivery and advances in neonatal resuscitation. The diagnosis of umbilical cord prolapse can be either occult or overt. Occult prolapse occurs when the cord passes through the cervix alongside the fetal presenting part. It is neither visible nor palpable. In overt prolapse, the cord presents in advance of the fetus and is visible or palpable within the vaginal vault or even past the labia. Prolapse of the cord often leads to cord compression, which in turn leads to abnormal findings on the fetal heart rate in 40 to 67% of cases. These changes are present as severe, sudden decelerations, often with prolonged bradycardia or recurrent moderate to severe variable decelerations. The diagnosis of overt umbilical cord prolapse is made on vaginal examination, which will reveal a palpable umbilical cord, usually as a soft pulsating mass within or visibly extruding from the vagina. A confirmed diagnosis of occult umbilical cord prolapse is rare because it cannot be definitively diagnosed even with Doppler ultrasound imaging is employed. Attempts to identify occult prolapse with imaging could delay necessary treatment for this otherwise emergent condition. Occult umbilical cord prolapse likely is the cause of some cases of urgent cesarean delivery for otherwise unexplained fetal bradycardia. All right, when we come back, let's talk about risk factors for this occurrence. Several factors increase the risk of cord prolapse. The main precipitating event, of course, is rupture of membranes, either spontaneous or performed artificially by a provider. Most risk factors for umbilical cord prolapse can be separated into two categories, spontaneous and iatrogenic. Spontaneous causes may be related to fetal factors, uterine distension, or pregnancy complications. 
Fetal risk factors include malpresentation, fetal anomalies, fetal growth restriction, or a small for gestational age fetus, funic, that's an umbilical cord, presentation, or cord abnormalities. Factors related to uterine distension include polyhydramnios, multiple gestations, and grand multiparity pregnancy complications that put the fetus at risk for umbilical cord prolapse include preterm delivery and preterm premature rupture of membranes. A number of iatrogenic causes also exist, some of which are related to routine procedures performed as part of normal labor management. These iatrogenic risk factors include artificial rupture of membranes, especially if the fetal head or the presenting part is not engaged, placement of a fetal scalp electrode or an intrauterine pressure catheter, amnioinfusion, an attempted rotation of the fetal head from the occiput posterior to the occiput anterior position. Additionally, external cephalic version is a known risk factor for its occurrence. Approximately half the cases of umbilical cord prolapse may be linked to iatrogenic causes, but iatrogenic cord prolapse does not appear to be clinically linked to poor outcomes. This is because the procedure in question are generally performed on labor and delivery units where continuous fetal monitoring and any necessary interventions are available. Furthermore, iatrogenic umbilical cord prolapse can occur in cases in which risk factors may have led to spontaneous prolapse without intervention. Studies seem to support this finding because different regional obstetrical practice styles have no specific effect on the overall incidence of umbilical cord prolapse. Well, what about prevention? Although a large percentage of umbilical cord prolapse cases are attributed to iatrogenic causes, there is no evidence that knowledge of risk factors can actually reduce the incidence of umbilical cord prolapse. At the same time, it's important to be aware of the risks when undertaking the interventions previously described. We recommend avoiding amniotomy unless the fetal head is well engaged or, if necessary, needling the bag for a slower, more controlled release of fluid. Now, if the vertex is not well applied to the cervix, mild fundal pressure during placement of the fetal scalp electrode or an intrauterine pressure catheter may help to minimize elevation of the vertex out of the pelvis. Providers should exercise caution with any of these procedures and perform them only in cases in which other methods are inadequate. Umbilical cord prolapse cannot be prevented, but subsequent fetal complications have been shown to often be preventable with significant decreases in fetal morbidity and mortality when the condition is promptly and appropriately treated. All right, leading into the next section is management. So let's cover management next. Cord prolapse results in fetal hypoxia and if not rapidly treated can lead to long-term disability or death. Prompt delivery has been shown to improve outcomes. This means that cases of umbilical cord prolapse should be delivered as quickly as possible, which generally means cesarean delivery. In rare cases, however, umbilical cord prolapse can occur when delivery is near. If the provider believes that a vaginal delivery can be performed more rapidly than a cesarean delivery, it is certainly appropriate to proceed with vaginal delivery. These cases, however, are relatively rare. 
Operative delivery should be considered if the fetal heart rate tracing shows concerning findings. The mainstay of management for umbilical cord prolapse is urgent cesarean delivery. From the time of diagnosis until cesarean can be performed, the fetal presenting part should be elevated to relieve pressure on the cord and arrangements should be made for urgent cesarean birth. Specifics on management will vary depending on whether an operative delivery can be accomplished within 30 minutes, typically in a hospital event, or there will be a delay of more than 30 minutes with an out-of-hospital event. Elevation of the presenting fetal part is key after identifying umbilical cord prolapse. This is to take pressure off the cord. This is generally performed manually with a physician placing two fingers or an entire hand into the vagina to elevate the fetus off the cord. Care should be taken to avoid palpation of the cord because that may cause vasospasm, potentially leading to a worse outcome. Placing the patient in steep Trendelenburg or in knee chest position is believed to be helpful by taking advantage of gravity to further relieve pressure on the cord, and this has been published. In cases in which the interval to delivery is likely to be prolonged, that is, like it requires maternal transport to another facility, bladder filling can be a better option. With this technique, commonly called VAGOS method, that's V-A-G-O-S, in reference to the physician who first described the technique, a Foley catheter is placed and the bladder is filled with 500 to 750 mLs of saline and then clamped. The patient's enlarged bladder provides some upward pressure on the fetus, thus helping to alleviate compression on the cord. In the original publication, Vega described this as an alternative to manual elevation, which he described as effective but unpleasant for the mother and wearing for the doctor. He also noticed that in his experience, filling the bladder tends to calm uterine contractions, which would certainly further relieve pressure on the cord. Over the years, studies have shown that Vago's method can be effective, and this employment can be done once again when an immediate cesarean section might be delayed comparison of manual elevation of the presenting part versus bladder filling actually shows essentially equal outcomes between the two groups, but it should be noted, however, that the combination of the two methods does not lead to any improvement over using one alone. Okay, let's continue our discussion on management. Another method that has been used to treat cord prolapse is the funic reduction technique. That's replacement of the cord back into the uterus by sliding it above the fetal presenting part. And again, this has to be a clinical pearl that this is typically not the most common way to handle the situation because tearing of the cord could occur. This is performed by placing the entire hand in the vagina and gently elevating the fetal head. The cord is then lightly elevated above the fetal head, preferably at its widest point, and replaced back in the uterus. The goal, of course, is that the cord should stay in the fetal nuchal region. Before cesarean delivery became commonplace, this funic reduction was a major part of management in cases of umbilical cord prolapse, but once again, it is now rarely performed. However, because outcomes were worse with this technique, then with cesarean delivery. There's been some discussion of renewed interest in funic reduction with some providers publishing their anecdotal reports. Nevertheless, it is still not recommended as common procedure as cesarean delivery remains the mainstay of treatment. 
Okay, when we come back, let's talk about outcomes after umbilical cord prolapse as a wrap-up to this session. Despite the potential for extremely poor outcomes, most neonates born after experiencing umbilical cord prolapse do very well, especially if delivery is achieved within 30 minutes. The literature shows improved outcomes for cases of umbilical cord prolapse that occur when the patient is already in the hospital, even if the fetus is not being monitored. One study has shown team training exercises to be beneficial in decreasing the mean diagnosis to delivery intervals in cases of umbilical cord prolapse. In addition, although this study was small and the results did not actually reach statistical significance, there was a trend towards improved APGAR scores and fewer NICU admissions. So it appears that these training exercises may lead to improved neonatal outcomes. These drills should stress both the steps taken prior to arrival in the OR and the role of all the members of the team in facilitating an efficient and safe urgent cesarean delivery. Well, that wraps up our quick session covering umbilical cord prolapse. We'll see you next time.